I don't necessarily think of our platform as a platform for religions. It's a platform for Eastern philosophies, which then you and I have had conversations about how that term is problematic because it sort of comes from an Orientalist historical experience. We're using contemplative studies as opposed to religious studies because I think a lot of our audience don't necessarily think of themselves as practicing religion when they're practicing yoga or practicing meditation. I think it really importantly points to one of the things that we're doing with embodied philosophy at large, introducing and trying to support new pedagogical opportunities, new forms for how people learn that move beyond the university, that it's not just when you decide to go back to graduate school that you can engage in really deep conversations about philosophical material. There's something really nice about being able to read a good but not too long article on a topic and then have a robust conversation about it. Welcome to the first episode of the Tarka Journal podcast. In this podcast, Stephanie Carigliano, editor-in-chief of the Tarka Journal, and myself, Jacob Kyle, will be having conversations with each other and other faculty and friends of embodied philosophy about topics and issues from the worlds of yoga philosophy, contemplative studies, and religious and dharma studies. Many of our conversations are inspired by themes we're exploring in the Tarka Journal as they relate to the experience of the scholar-practitioner. Today, in our very first episode, Stephanie and I talk about the why behind Tarka, what the intentions of the project are, and also speak a little bit about the history of working together and how much this project means to us. So this episode is a little glimpse behind the scenes, and we hope the podcast in general will encourage a sense of community and conversation around the Tarka Journal. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on your relevant podcast app, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at Tarka Journal. So without any further ado, here is the first episode of the Tarka Journal podcast. So one of the things that has come up for us since we started the Tarka Journal a couple of years ago is questioning the name. And so I thought we could talk a little bit about the name. And I wanted to do that by means of reading this passage that sort of gives credence to the argument that perhaps we should have chosen another one. Because as we have been told by a couple of colleagues and, and friends of embodied philosophy, Tarka is often associated with dry reasoning. So this is from a scholar, Raphael Torella's book, The Philosophical Traditions of India. And he writes, this concern that autonomous reasoning may end by triggering a delirium of omnipotence or merely debase itself in the self-satisfaction of a technique aimed especially at wearing down opposing ideas, and then in parentheses, this is a frequent meaning of Tarka, is also common to currents foreign to Vedic revelation, such as Buddhism or Jainism. And then here's the kicker uh, line. In traditional philosophical circles, the term Tarka is frequently associated with the adjective shushka, which means arid, dry, or without juice. So why did we use this title for our journal is, is the question. You were mentioning before, Stephanie, that a couple people have actually reached out and asked us why we chose this title. 
early on when we were working on the issue on the scholar practitioner, I'd reached out to Frank Clooney and he responded positively and, and agreed to give us an article um, and also asked a question about why we would use this term Tarka for the name of our journal, because he normally thought of it as something like dry reasoning, which is probably not the, the most exciting idea. But I think we invited, uh, in part in response to that and a few other questions, we'd invited Kavita, one of our faculty here at Embodied Philosophy, to help compose a script for an animation that we now have on the Tarka homepage to give a little bit more color to the term. She develops that a little bit and refers to this idea of dry reasoning, but elevates that uh, with this concept of satarka. Satarka in a lot of the philosophical texts is, I guess, what we're meaning or intending with the term tarka, but satarka, you know, means sort of the discernment or the logic or the the reasoning of truth and sat here being associated with kind of the truth of the self or the truth of the that consciousness or that state of uh, experience that one is looking to cultivate through practice or through their own philosophical engagement. My initial experience with the word and what I was drawing the inspiration from the title from was my knowledge of the term from Abhinava Gupta's work. So when I did come up with the name, which was how many years ago now? Was that three years ago? Four years ago? It was, a while. It was four years ago. It's 2018. I was just looking back for when I actually um, started with embodied philosophy. Wow. We've been working together for four years. That's so amazing. It is. I love that. Yeah. yeah I mean, back then that was really the, my only kind of familiarity with the term. And in his work, he posits Tarka as the highest limb of yoga. And, and by that, of course, he doesn't mean dry reasoning. He doesn't mean sort of a cold clinical logic that purges the body of emotion or something like we would maybe associate with Western reason and its tendency to exclude the affective or the embodied part of experience. But because Abhinava Gupta is referring to a state or an experience of yoga that is in some sense mystical and transcends the body and the mind, it can't really be a cold, merely rational state. It has to be sort of a, a state of what recently in a talk I heard Alexis Sanderson refer to as intellectual bhakti, which I think is much more the way that I read the term and the way that I experience the term, even though that is obviously a partial in terms of you know the history of the term a biased perspective because it's the perspective of one particular thinker. But I think that's a little bit what we're on about, right, with Tarka is that the spirit of devotion that arises through intellectual engagement. Yeah, I love that concept of intellectual bhakti in part just because it it seems to recognize the act of devotion and the spiritual possibilities of study in ways that I think can often be forgotten or ignored. And maybe it's particularly the Western academic world where, you know, the university increasingly moves towards a kind of more pragmatic approach to studying and trade schools. And what is the job that you hope to get from the, your study or what is the practical you know, outcome of, of your degree? Whereas the fields of theology and even religious studies and philosophy are full of bhaktas, of, of mm. people that are devoted to their path of study. They're, they're not just usually there even the most successful are not there, you know, for a paycheck alone. They're there because they're in a true devotional pursuit of knowledge, which is, you know, quite an interesting endeavor. 
when you put it in that context, it's sort of hard to imagine anyone being successful at any pursuit in life without bhakti, without devotion. My teacher, Paul, often points out that this is one of the sort of misnomers is that, you know, on the one side you have Vaishnava bhakti and then that's Tantra over there, but really bhakti, is, it penetrates really everything if you want to kind of take it and with a more kind of expanded concept of being that sort of wellspring of devotion that is required to engage with anything. For a lot of people, there's a, a real separation between what we think of as a spiritual practice and, you know, something like studying. And I, you know, you see priests with front, like, for example, from the Catholic tradition, and they have their devotional practice and perhaps the work they do on Sunday, and then they may do, you know, other scholarship. But to see really that, that many practitioners express and really pursue their spiritual path through their, their act of studying is quite, I think it's an important move, especially as we, in terms of what we're doing with this journal and our focus on the scholar practitioner, it is this idea that these two are not separate and to really develop a, a robust uh, sense of practice requires some curiosity and some desire for knowledge about that practice and vice versa, that that knowledge about a history and a tradition is really only complete when you have that element of practice. I love what we're talking about because it sort of reminds me one of the foundational sort of inspirations for embodied philosophy was partly based in my experience in the yoga community. In some of the popular yoga world, there is this sense of, oh, just feel it. Like yoga is just about feeling and, you know, don't get too wrapped up in the intellectual nitty gritty. The study is, is sort of secondary to the practice and that really what we should be prioritizing is like the way the body feels at any given moment and blah, blah, blah. And, and this sort of almost anti-intellectualism, I think, in kind of the popular, some segments of the popular yoga world and this idea that there's something like a, a pure uh, emotional knowing that is exempt from any intellectual engagement. Does that make sense? It does. You know, sometimes I wonder if, if some of that emphasis doesn't in part come from the heavy emphasis on the yoga sutras within modern yoga circles. And for a long time, if somebody was doing a yoga teacher training and they were going to learn one text from Hinduism, it was most likely going to be yoga sutras and they would get, you know, maybe a few hours on yoga sutras and something like this idea of chitta vritti nirodha, cessation of thought lends itself towards not thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of if your goal of yoga practice is to reduce your you know, fluctuations of thought, the idea of pursuing knowledge seems a little um, counterintuitive. Do you think I, that's the correct interpretation of, do you, do you read it that way? Or do you think that's just the kind of widespread interpretation of that sutra? I think that could be its own whole conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think there's different ways of interpreting things that differ between a, um, a literal translation and trying to understand it from within the tradition and also what makes sense in terms of practice. Mm. And so on a practice level, a sutra like that has to imply many levels of not having thought stopped, of having thought slowed, perhaps the slowing mm. of the churning of thoughts of, mm. of just, you know, stopping that, you know, being willing to look at the thoughts as they change. And this, you know, idea of coming to a place of meditation, that's quiet and less distracted. I do think, you know, that is, seems to be the, the focus or the thrust of that first pada of the yoga sutras, the cessation of thought, you know, I, I have not experienced that, but it, as in my understanding from the scholars that have come 
before me that that is this absorbed consciousness of samadhi is is the goal one goal for yoga yeah Whether or not that's our goal is a whole nother question and i appreciate you mentioning that it's um perhaps its own conversation maybe we'll bracket that and save save it for our shitheads converse interview with you <laughs> um which is coming on this topic i recall my conversation with Edwin Bryan a number of years ago on this very topic. And I really liked what he said, where he mentioned that the Yoga Sutras was his text for the meditation cushion. And then the Bhagavad Gita was his text for the rest of his engagement in life. And I think his point there was that, you know, in in within the coordinates of my seated meditation practice, something like the Yoga Sutras and something like Chittavriti Narodaha makes sense, right? It actually makes sense you know, that one could achieve a state of, of a lack of fluctuations when they're sitting on a meditation cushion, where if you had a lack of fluctuations, when you're engaged in the world, you're probably brain dead in some way. And it doesn't really make sense to, to talk about an absence of fluctuations when you're engaged in relationships and you have a family and, and all of these things. So I really liked that point he made because it kind of, it helps us reimagine like what we're talking about when we're talking about our relationship with the text and that it doesn't have to be this kind of absolute sort of all encompassing or that the teaching within a text is meant to apply to every circumstance or to every type of person. And that to me is sort of like a radical idea a little bit or maybe a refreshing one because we have, we do have this, maybe this tendency to look for another Bible, maybe, you know, so we're looking for a book that translates like across all experience and it's the tome, it's the, I don't know, you know, it's the, it's that which we refer to and try to default back to in all aspects of life, but maybe these texts aren't meant to be read in that way. Right. And, you know, that brings me to another kind of thought that I have in terms of the anti-intellectual sort of thrust of much of modern yoga, or maybe, you know, in the past, I think that's changing now, um, yeah. you know, especially in the last few years, but I, I the other factor is, and I also experienced this because I came to the study of Hinduism and theology from a place of practice. I'd been practicing asana, you know, with a teacher in India for, a, you know, nearly a decade before I went back to graduate school. And initially really deeply learning some of these texts and studying was very discombobulating. It made, it brought up all these questions, very real. Is this modern asana practice that I've been doing? Does it actually have anything to do with any of these traditions? Maybe I'm not even doing yoga. And then that can actually undermine the impetus to even want to continue practicing, even though I'd had a decade of experience letting me know that all things aside, the physical practice was effective and beneficial in my life learning this kind of this kind of philosophy and study that seemed to was so confusing and overwhelming and certain and didn't directly relate and didn't directly support sometimes what I'd been doing you know that that was very disarming and i think it can be an overwhelming task for a lot of students i think we're in a new place and we're seeing a kind of a new horizon in the scope of learning yoga philosophy now and it, part of that's just the work that's been done over the last 10 years all of these emerging scholars that have come up and are looking at carefully at historical texts, but also looking at modern circumstances and what is actually, you know, what is modern yoga? How does it relate to these historical texts and finding new, you know, new expressions and new ways to, to engage. So I think we're actually in an exciting time for that. It's worth acknowledging the fact that delving into that history is it's disarming and, um, mm. and it's, you know, something of something of its own spiritual practice. 
And that's, I mean, uh, you've mentioned the study of yoga philosophy and even that in and of itself is a bit of a misnomer. Um, uh, and some people think, again, it's like some people have said to me before that yoga has no philosophy. It's like goes back to that, that idea. And all of these things really come down to how you define your terms at the end of the day. Shameless plug, we're exploring that in our year-long certificate program, <laughs> Embodied <laughs> Philosophy, which Stephanie and I happen to uh, co-direct together. Um, so if anybody's interested in having these conversations more extensively for a whole year, um, that's available to you. you know, you are the, the editor-in-chief of the journal. What are the intentions, like what is the, the goal and vision that you see Tarka as trying to push forward? That's a big question. It's a good one. You know, I, I really, I, I think the, the vision and the goal, the purpose of this journal really is that um, lifting up of the scholar practitioner. And I think that that comes out of a whole history, which is explored in that scholar practitioner issue in part, but you know, we've, there's so much more that can be written and said on it. My background is in theology. So I did my master's degree in, uh, in, in Catholic theology, and then went on to Boston college, which is a, a Jesuit university and did a comparative theology degree. But one of the premises of theology is faith seeking understanding from a Catholic perspective that a person has faith in what in in their tradition and they go and they turn to study to support that faith and they write their scholarship sometimes very often with their audience of believers or the faithful in mind so that their scholarship has a purpose to lift up that community and with the dichotomy with religious studies is that so often south asian studies has been allocated to a religious studies department where that kind of subjectivity in relation to the material is not really permissible or it's actually you know not allowed a lot of times yeah. so you have this this dream of the or the vision of the objective scholar who's just studying their material and presenting some facts and you know the student can learn that those facts and materials but to have a merging of those two worlds um is something more done in relation to perhaps your own teacher, if you find you know, your own guru, your own, um, your own spiritual community for that kind of study, but less so much in, in the academy or with less within popular discourse. What I learned from my background in Catholic theology was the very exciting work that goes on within that. Um, this idea that uh, for me, what was very inspiring in, in doing my master's in Catholic theology was this idea of liberation theology and the engagement of contemporary faith communities with issues of social justice. So that you have, you know, this very, um, a lot of times very cutting edge engagement with faith, historical texts and traditions, and the current, you know, the, the questions that are most burning for our current era, you know, whatever is coming up. And so we have, we've been able to do that with Tarka where we've, you know, our most recent issue was on queer Dharma, identifying issues that are relevant to, you know, queer people and talking about them in relation to this, to tradition um, and to, and to modern community. And I think we're, we've been able to kind of, we have an issue on, a, on ecology, so that's similar, lifting up these current pressing issues in relation to both texts and, and community. What you pointed to about the way in which kind of the modern academy frowns upon sort of the the notion of the scholar practitioner is really interesting right because we sort of see 
the split between the two, like on the one hand, there's the divinity, speaking from at the level of kind of religion and theology, on the one hand, there's divinity schools, right? Where there's the expectation that you, you know, you're a practitioner, you're becoming a, a pastor or a minister of some sort of tradition. And then the religious studies, on the other hand, is that department that represents sort of the objectivist, quote unquote, impulse of, of Western scholarship. And didn't you write about this in your article for the Scholar Practitioner Journal, where you were talking about the, the historical split, right, between these two? Yeah, um, that. I think it's an interesting historical split and it's a beneficial split because this split between religious studies and theology allowed for, it allowed for a move beyond pure evangelization to be the purpose of one of the driving purposes of work of studying religious traditions. And it moved the study of religious traditions outside of just a purely religious uh, institution to, you know, all secular and public education universities could offer something like religious studies. It seemed like there's a great benefit in learning about the world's religious traditions, whether or not you are a religious person, if you're working in healthcare or business or et cetera, you know, that there's a benefit to knowing how people live and what their different worldviews are. So those are the really the great triumphs of the field of religious studies. And yet along the way, also something was lost, I think. And along the way, you have a lot of practitioners, modern practitioners of Buddhism, of Hinduism, that typically did not self-disclose or did not reveal their own faith background within their work. And so their work is not purely objective. It does come from a place of their own questions and and their own positionality in in relation to their material. And it's kind of interesting to to see now a a return to that needing to self-identify within one's work and to really think about what is the community that you're doing this work for. If you're writing for a community of, um, of practitioners like yourself, then there's a value in in identifying that and recognizing that within your work. One of the things that I think what makes us complimentary to each other as colleagues is that you're really not afraid to talk about religion and to use that term. And I think from working with you, I've actually become more relaxed in letting that word back into my my vocabulary, because I know for me, I don't think of embodied philosophy, even still now, I don't necessarily think of our platform as a platform for religions. I, you know, I initially started out with, it's a platform for Eastern philosophies, which then, you know, you and I have had conversations about, about how that term is problematic because it sort of comes from an Orientalist historical experience. And now it's sort of just, if it's used, it's really kind of a term of convenience almost because, because people know what that means. You know, it's, it's like one of those double-edged swords where, or maybe double-edged sword is the wrong word for it. But on the one hand, Eastern philosophy is a term people are familiar with, so it draws them in. Um, Whereas, for example, what we're tending to use now, something like contemplative traditions or contemplative studies is a term we use a lot, Dharma studies. That That doesn't have as much draw because I think it's a little more ambiguous, right? Um, But we're using contemplative studies as opposed to religious studies because I think a lot of our audience, right, don't necessarily think of themselves as practicing religion when they're practicing yoga or practicing meditation. And because a lot of them have come to contemplative paths sometimes, you know, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, (laughs) come from, you know, religious associated trauma that makes, you know, us uncomfortable with the kind of rigid 
ideas that we associate with that term religion. I kind of wanted to bring that up because, you know, when we have conversations, you often use this term religion. I sometimes go back to kind of contemplative traditions, but really I think one thing that we are trying to encourage with our more popular offerings is to, is to maybe reimagine what religion is and also feature or platform individuals, scholars, teachers who are illustrating more different expressions of, of kind of religion that, that don't default to those more fundamentalist or rigid ideas that we're afraid of, <laughs> that some of us are afraid of. <laughs> Sometimes I like the use of religion when I'm speaking, you know, with kind of a more spiritual, but not religious community, just because it's, it can be a bit provocative in the, in that context. Mm. So I, oh, so you like being provocative. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets people's attention in the right audience. It can, you know, in, in the right context, but I think I, I know I also use it because in some ways, um, it's a nod towards that desire to connect to more ancient or authentic sources of traditions and lived communities. And that's, you know, of course, for me, one of maybe my fears or my issues of trepidation around the spiritual, but not religious community of which I'm, you know, certainly a part in some way, um, you know, with these, this many years within yoga studies and yoga practice, um, but I, I am always a little bit wary of this kind of solid bar experience of spiritual practice, this taking, you know, taking a little bit of yoga practice from here, a little meditation from there, some crystal therapy work there, some aromatherapy mm-hmm. on top of that and, and mixing it all together. And, and that's, you know, doesn't, it could be a very beautiful spiritual path. And yet what I, what I would like to see is some connection to where is this coming from? And it's almost like, the training that you learn in graduate school to cite your sources, <laughs> to have yeah. a good, you know, index or adding footnotes in and crediting where did you get your ideas from? I would like to have that sense of, you know, where is this coming from? And, and not that innovation is a bad thing, but it's nice to know what your background is. So you can be clear about when you are innovating, when, you know, new things are emerging. I think that's helpful. And it helps us to be, um, it, that, that is also deeply connected to this idea of, you know, kind of a post-colonial theology, a post of, of being able to recognize where your ideas come from well enough to credit those sources and then be comfortable moving forward into a new imagination of what spiritual practice is, because certainly historical religious traditions are, you know, as full of promise as they are of problems. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not trying to you know glorify the history of religious traditions, but also um, wanting to recognize that they they are home to a lot of our you know mystical traditions that inspire the spiritual but not religious community today. What you're saying kind of loops us back to our you know, topic at hand, which is our journal Charka, that we're talking about sort of the origins of today and the inspiration behind. And it illustrates how, what an ambitious project it is really, because on the one hand, we are really trying to encourage a robust and rigorous understanding of the history and the philosophy of these traditions. And then at the same time, I mean, each issue is grappling with a contemporary, we're trying to integrate that with contemporary issues. And that's not always easy. You know, I mean, there really couldn't be anything more uncomfortable on the face of it than the marriage of queerness and Dharma. I mean, because, and we found that right. Even when we were trying to curate content for it, we just, it was like crickets, 
<laughs> nobody doing a call for papers and nobody responds like I, no, I had a, I a tremendous response to the call for papers but a far less once people got writing I had a, a whole slew of letters from authors saying that they were not able to complete their work um, that they mm. realized that they had ideas for projects that they, they felt underprepared for writing or that they were you know became too much emotional labor maybe also combined with being in the midst of a pandemic but it's you know it's it's a challenging topic for people and part of that comes from you know a lack of a lack of other material already having been published on it that there's yeah. not a huge amount of resources for this community to draw from to build upon to argue against and build new ideas upon so you know, we're trying to forge new ground with the topic of queer dharma. It's an example, I think, of 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 trying to do this quite challenging task, and maybe not actually satisfying everybody because because people tend to sit on one side or the other, right? People tend to be either like they want to focus on sort of the ancient original, well, original quote in quotes uh, traditions, or they want to be working on contemporary issues. But that that intersection is is sometimes a challenge to find. Yeah, I also think that what you're, you know, you're, you've pointed to the juxtaposition of the terms queer and dharma, but also what's at play in that issue is this um, juxtaposition of religious communities and the spiritual but not religious. And that came to life where you had practitioners that were very invested in, you know, years of practice of meditation, but had never really formally considered themselves Buddhist or, you know, similarly with a yoga practice. But so are they, they're writing about their experience, which is very important or, you know, worthy of considering in relation to contemporary communities and how, you know, how yoga or meditation relates to their own you know, experience of being queer in perhaps an American context. And then making another step within the issue to relate that to the historical traditions of Dharma, of, the, of, of Buddhism and Hinduism, Jainism. And so there's, you know, a lot kind of at play there. And so some, some, I think some of the authors were less comfortable with talking about Dharma because it is a kind of religious term and, you know, do they really see themselves as Buddhists? And so then it became a whole nother, you know, issue of labeling, you know, where do the labels come in? When are they important? And, you know, is the fact of labeling oneself then, you know, you know, what does that entail and what does it require and ask of a person? Um, so it, it's, it's its own sort of area of discomfort that is very relevant to the queer community, but also relevant, you know, within the other issues of Tarka that we have. You know, I think there is also a desire, like we've said about queer dharma, to, we're trying to be, we're trying to push the conversation forward and be innovative, not just for the sake of being innovative, but but for the sake of, of forging new territory that could then, as a result of the conversations we're having, perhaps... I don't know, be transformative for, for people in various ways in the way that they relate to them, their study and practice as well. I was thinking about, you know, what actually was our first issue that we published, even though um, Scholar Practitioner was, you know, dated to be the issue zero. Our first issue was the Bhakti on Bhakti mm-hmm. issue. And it has a very heavy um, Krishna Bhakti slant. You know, it was our first it's a lot to take on a topic like bhakti and even in one journal issue, you're not going to do just justice to something like, you know, the Vaishnava tradition of bhakti. It's just, you know, there's like, you know, volumes and volumes and years of work you could put into trying to create a good issue on that. But this is, a, we covered a lot of basic terms and introduced a lot of fundamental concepts in this issue. And just thinking back to how we opened our conversation today, 
about the idea of bhakti in relation to study and bhakti, how it relates to so many other areas in terms of how we live. It's, you know, the idea of developing these terms with a, with one foot in desiring a historical understanding of them and another foot moving towards a, a contemporary interpretations and uses for the terms is, you know, it's an ongoing project. We'd probably create a whole, we could probably create bhakti too on bhakti. Oh yeah. <laughs> Issue yeah. two, totally different uh, focus. But I guess that's one of the things that we've sort of had to relax a little bit about, or I feel like I've had to um, relax a little bit about is that, you know, you can, you can gesture at being comprehensive, but really it's it's sort of impossible in any of these topics to be truly comprehensive. What you, I guess at most, or one of the things you can hope for is just to, to encourage a conversation, right? Around the topics. And actually that's part of the reason why we've decided to start doing this podcast is to talk about the articles in Tarka and other articles. I think we, we kind of, have a desire to both explore the the articles and sort of the topics and and issues that come up when reading them because I think a lot of the articles in the different issues are some of them are quite provocative and they open up a whole world of of possible conversation and debate. I think it really importantly points to one of the things that we're doing with embodied philosophy at large and really uh, introducing and trying to support new pedagogical opportunities, new forms for how people learn and that move beyond the university, that it's not just when you decide to go back to graduate school that you can engage in really deep conversations about philosophical material, that as a practitioner that maybe, you know, there's, there's something really nice about being able to read a good but not too long article on a topic and then have a robust conversation about it. And that's a lot of what happens in the university context in the, in the setting. It's what's so beautiful I found about going back to graduate school, being able to read these rich, rich material and then have a group of people that I could come to once a week or whatever, however often a class met and have conversations about the material and hear somebody speak about the intent behind the article and give a little bit of background. And, and so I think that's really beautiful. It's something that we can do by offering something like the Tarka journal at times there's complimentary courses, but then there's, you know, the idea of having a conversation to unpack an issue and maybe hear from the author or hear from other people who've read the article. Um, in that way, we can all be a part of this, you know, virtual classroom and really think about how do we advance this kind of education uh, outside of the university. Um, yeah. How, how do we support it also? Yeah. So to that point, you know, you're bringing up possibilities about conversations with even Tarka Journal subscribers, you know, people who have, you know, things they want to share. If that's you and you're listening to this, I'm going to throw out an email address that we'll probably have to create because I'm not sure it exists yet, but it will by the time you hear this, Tarka at embodiedphilosophy.com. It's just the name of the journal, Tarka, T-A-R-K-A at embodiedphilosophy.com. And you can send us um, your ideas if there's, if you're a subscriber and there is a particular article that you thought was really provocative and you want to have a conversation about it, we can begin that conversation and the possibility of having it together via email. So send us an email at Tarka at embodiedphilosophy.com and we'll get back to you. So Stephanie, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how we met and actually how Tarka got started. First of all, how did you hear about embodied philosophy and how did you hear about the Tarka journal as an opportunity? 
Uh, I think it was Chris Chappell <laughs> who sent me a notice uh, letting letting me know that you were looking for an editor for a journal that you'd like to create. And so um, that was the introduction I have to give thanks to Chris, who is a tireless supporter of all of his students. And I remain grateful to his uh, his support throughout the years, um, having been his student as an MA and a PhD. I remember the first conversation we had, I was actually walking down the street in Brooklyn. Uh, I think I was leaving, I was leaving some sort of appointment. And I remember talking to you, like, as I was on my way to the subway and I just remember it very vividly and just being excited because, you know, even though I had I was working with people with advanced degrees. I didn't, uh, I hadn't yet worked with someone who had an advanced degree actually in the editorial area that we publish in. And so it was sort of like the first opportunity I had to really work with like a colleague in the area that I was interested in. And, and so that, that was very exciting for me. I remember that I was sitting on my back porch (laughs) and that I'm in um, Northern California and, you know, Outside of academia, we made an intentional decision to move to a fairly rural area. Um, and I've, you know, since this, that time been able to kind of find homes in a couple of different universities where I also teach. But this was such a wonderful opportunity for me to feel like I could really continue. You know, when I first moved to this area, I wasn't sure what I would be doing for work if I would just switch gears and open a coffee shop. <laughs> you know, what be would be a beekeeper? <laughs> be a beekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd go in the, I might bankrupt doing that, but, (laughs) but for those um, listening, Stephanie actually, it does keep bees. I just, that's why I mentioned it. She actually has bee. You have bees on your property, right? Yeah, we have this year we had a, you know, it's not a huge opera. We had about five hives going this year. So how often do you get stung? (laughs) Um, Not too often. Uh, My first honey harvest, I, I took, I entered the hives and found out moments later that I had a huge cut in the front of my, I was wearing this mask and I thought this, this sound is so loud. (laughs) I realized it was because the bees were all around my ears and my face. (laughs) They were inside. So I got stung in my face. I'd look like I'd been beat up. Um, You know, I'd got several stings. (laughs) Was that kind of scary? It was very scary. scary. Yeah. Yeah. I went running through our field. <laughs> the bees. Screaming. <laughs> Most beekeepers have some story of trying to escape the bees once you've made them mad. But this year I had, you know, I did uh, several um, capturing loose uh, swarms and they're very docile. So I had this magical experiences of holding bees on my hands that don't sting because they're looking, they don't have a home yet. So they're very docile when they don't, when they're dehomed. Oh, that's sad. I'm very docile when I'm dehomed as well. (laughs) (laughs) So you were on your back porch and, um, and we had this conversation. It obviously went well because you started working with us and you've been here since then (laughs) through good times and bad. But when we started the journal, it was actually all online, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about what it, what it initially looked like? Yeah. So back to that initial conversation, it sounded such like such an exciting opportunity. And it was also, um, it was such a big idea with no, no foundation except for the platform of embodied philosophy, which was running amazing courses at the time and had a great podcast going, but um, it was kind of like, start this journal up. Here's, I was thinking the title could be Tarka and this are, and so it was really from, you know, from ground up, what are we going to do and how will we make this journal? 
So my initial idea or work with it was creating a monthly publication of about 10 to 12 articles on a particular theme. And we had usually, uh, you know, anywhere from two to four original articles in each of those monthly editions. And then I also actively sourced um, academic articles that maybe I felt hadn't received full attention that they deserved. You know, a lot of academics put huge amounts of work into articles that don't get a lot of readership because they're published in, you know, gated you know, platforms or, or journals that only have a certain limited uh, scope. So I, I did quite a bit of legwork just reaching out to authors and finding out who had permissions for their articles that we could reprint. And so for, uh, I don't know if it was about a year and a half or two years, we ran monthly issues of Tarka online and it was free um, at that time as a free publication, just putting together thematic issues um, anywhere from, you know, we did had art issues on pluralism and um, uh, uh, gosh, you're forgetting all of them. <laughs> we had yoga sutras. We had we had we had yoga sutras. We had Bhagavad Gita. I think we did we did one on prana and pranayama. We had a social justice one. Did one on the divine feminine. I think that one was one was one of my favorites. Um, in fact, I think we're gonna at some point soon. We got to do basically a divine feminine print issue. And for those listening, you can still find all all the articles that were initially a part of the online version of Tarka, they've now been sort of, you know, essentially disseminated on our new platform. Well, it's not new anymore. It's been around for a year now, but a year ago we, we launched a new website. And, um, but by that time we'd already launched the print journal of Tarka. And so the online journal of Tarka kind of had to perish in a, in a way, cause it would, otherwise it would have caused confusion. Um, but the articles are still all there and on our website. Um, if, you know, if you have some time and you want to run to our website and dig around a bit, all of those, all of those past, uh, articles are still around and they're quite great. And it was really quite a feat that you were, I remember, you know, we were at a monthly turnaround and even though you were curating mostly republished content, still that was quite a task. And there was, there were months where, where it was a bit of, um, of a challenge, right. To, to get things turned around in under a month. Yeah, no, it was all, it was a great, um, experience of also networking though, and finding people that were also very grateful, I think, to, feel like their their work was coming to you know fresh light and so that was you know a very gratifying part of that work um and creating partnerships between people that were um you know hoping to promote a book that they had coming up or hoping to promote teachings that they were doing some other place so we did a lot of you know kind of creating that and still some of those partnerships endure with the current version of Tarka where we have authors that regularly contribute um, because they were part of that, you know, early version of, um, you know, we've built some pretty stable, good relationships with our, with our authors and writers. So that's been a really yeah. fun part. But we're always looking for more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just going to sort of in, uh, interject a few of these, you know, plugs in here for anyone who's listening, who, um, who wants to know what our upcoming issue um, issues focuses foci are. <laughs> and you can find out more if you go to embodyphilosophy.com forward slash Tarka. And I think they're on that page or maybe on our submissions page. 
which you can find a link to at the bottom of the website. There is information about the upcoming um, issues that we're doing. And our conversation today, the upcoming issues that we, and I know there's a little bit of work we actually have to do there, but um, we have an issue coming up actually that's going to be released relatively soon. It's in, it's in sort of its final stages on the spiritual citizenship. Um, and that was inspired by a conference we did last year by the same title, Spiritual Citizenship Online Conference. We had our keynote speaker, Cornell West. And uh, do you want to say a few words about about that one, Stephanie, and how it's going? Yeah, it's we should be getting we're ready to almost ready to have our proofs um, coming back. And so we very um, it's very much in its final stage. Um, And this is really an an issue that I think is um, like scholar practitioner. I think it lays some of the foundation for what we're hoping to do in more in in larger terms for the, for the issue or for the journal of Tarka, um, just because it, it's engaging in so many different areas. The, the conference itself looked at five categories of race, queer Dharma or queer identity, ecology, and kind of the concept of spiritual activism. And then I think what, and then spiritual citizenship, just as that was one mm-hmm. of the days and cultural appropriation and kind of post. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Apologies. And so we have articles from all of these areas within the issue. And, and, you know, all of these are categories that could have their, and some do already have their own issues of Tarka, but it's also, you know, lenses through which we'd like to address these more specific topics. So when we go on to, um, you know, after spiritual citizenship, the next issue we have coming up is Tantra. And of course, in the, within the Tantra issue of Tarka, we will want to look at some historical ideas, but also we'll want to engage these different categories of, um, of, of living and contemporary issues in relation to Tantra. So that's kind of an ongoing project, but spiritual citizenship is, I think, a pretty exciting topic for us. And I know I mean, it is, a, it's an exciting topic and it does touch on so much. And I think that issue is going to be really rich. We are also doing an issue coming up on teaching. I'm really excited about that issue because we also want to connect it with another conference as well and have people come and talk about, you know, what does contemplative pedagogy look like? And I'm sure many people have different approaches to that, but it really, I think, connects to a large portion of our audience because it's going to connect with, you know, scholars who teach in the context of the academy. And it also is going to touch upon uh, the segment of our audience that are yoga teachers who are teaching yoga and you know what does it mean to teach yoga philosophy in the context of a yoga class and in the context of a yoga teacher training how should we be teaching that philosophy should it be you know just sort of a satellite scholarly approach to the subject matter or should it be something different you know it's it's i think it's such a rich topic that i'm really excited to to explore both in the conference and in that issue this has been a delightful start to the Tarka Journal podcast. We talked about a lot, didn't we, Stephanie? We talked about the history of the journal. We talked a little bit about kind of the inspiration behind the journal. We talked about how we met and what the future holds, a little about what the future holds. My hope for this podcast, for these discussions is 
and especially this first uh, conversation is to, you know, really outline some of, I think, the inspiration behind Tarka and encourage, you know, some of the listeners who are also authors and scholars to become involved and let us know if they're interested in, in writing and in, ha- in having these discussions. Um, and, you know, I think it, we just referenced the scholar practitioner and the spiritual citizenship components, I think those are really important foundations for the work that we've been doing and that I find very exciting. And I hope that, um, you know, we'll dive into those issues with more specificity and in coming conversations. And if you're listening to this, but you've never haven't become a subscriber yet, there's two options of becoming a subscriber. You can be digital and you can be a print subscriber currently we, the print is, I believe, available just in the United States, although that will be changing very soon. But in the meantime, you can be um, a digital subscriber to Tarka. And all of that information is available on the website. So I wanted to give the listeners um, a little bit of a taste of what's coming up in the Tarka Journal podcast, because we have a few conversations that are planned. And there will, of course, be many more to come. Um, But the next one, Stephanie and I are going to go behind the scenes of the existing issues of the Tarka Journal. And how many are there, Stephanie? Six? There will, there are six and there will soon be seven. Ah, excellent. So we're going to go behind the scenes to each, uh, behind each of the existing issues and, and give a little bit of that, um, uh, never before seen footage of what <laughs> <laughs> what went into these issues. So that's the next uh, um, um, podcast episode. And then we'll be talking to Ryan Lemaire, who is our creative director. Then we will be uh, uh, speaking with Marcy Braverman Goldstein about her article, Is Academia Like a Religion? And that article comes from our first issue of the Tarka Journal, which is actually issue number zero, because we published issue one. And then when we went and retroactively published issue zero, for reasons we will explain next time. <laughs> and uh, and that episode with Marcy will actually be a little bit more like the formula that we're going to use for this um, podcast moving forward, which is to have conversations with authors of articles from the Tarka Journal, or we'll have conversations with fa- other faculty and friends, or Stephanie, just Stephanie and I, about articles from the journal or other articles that are being that have been published in the field of contemplative studies, and um, and really focus on kind of conversations um, between uh, colleagues uh, about sort of interesting work that's happening in in the field of religion and religious studies and contemplative studies. Yeah, I think that's great. It gives a chance to unpack some of the content that goes in and the ideas that are in the articles. And so you can kind of walk through and and discuss the ideas with a little bit more color and life and feel like, you know, we hope also that the audience has a chance to feel that they're a part of that conversation as we um, kind of pursue this form of engaged learning. Thank you, Stephanie, for your time. And thank you to all of the members of the Embodied Philosophy community who are listening to our conversation today. Thank you, especially to the subscribers of the Tarka Journal for supporting the life and the future of this work that we are doing. And we will see you next time on the Tarka Journal podcast. Mm-hmm.